welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk to the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and this week we are talking about Iraq and Iran with Dr. Kenneth Pollack, senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Ken is one of the top American experts on Iran, Iraq, and Middle East political military affairs. He began his career as a Persian Gulf military analyst at the CIA, where he was awarded the CIA's Exceptional Performance Award twice and the Certificate of Distinction for Outstanding Performance of Duty. Ken served twice as a director on the National Security Council dealing with the Persian Gulf during the Clinton administration and is the author of 10 books on Iran, Iraq, and the region, most recently from 2019, Armies of Sand, the Past, Present, and Future of Arab Military Effectiveness, which is widely considered a standard and go-to work on the subject. My conversation with Ken Pollack about Iraq, Iran, and the options and scenarios for U.S. policy begins now. And welcome to On the Middle East. Thanks so much for having me on, Andrew. Let's get into it. Iraq had an election on Sunday. The votes are still being tallied, and it it may take up to two weeks before the Iraqi government certifies exactly how many seats each party or coalition has received to fill Iraq's 329-seat Council of Representatives or Parliament. But I think what we can say, by what we know about the vote so far, that Iraqi populist cleric Muqtada al-Sadr is a big winner. Former Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki may be back in the arena, and that the Speaker of the Parliament, Mohammed al-Busi's party, his uh, vote turnout signals a new, more engaged trend among Iraq Sunnis. What are your takeaways so far from the results? Sure. So I think you're right, Andrew. I think that the the results of the Iraqi election are are fascinating so far. And I think they do tell a number of different stories, some kind of smaller micro stories about Iraq and Iraqi politics. But I also think that there's a a story to be told, a lesson to be learned about the the wider issue of Iraq in the Middle East and where Iraq is headed. So first, just some of these micro stories. I think you're absolutely correct. You point out that uh, Mohammed al-Busi, the Sunni speaker of the parliament, won very big. I think that that reflects something of a consolidation of the Sunnis. They've been badly fragmented basically since 2014, when ISIS Daesh attacked Iraq, and that really created problems for the wider Sunni community. I think we're we're starting to see them once again cohere around Halbusi, recognizing that the fragmentation was terrible for them, that it allowed them to be picked off by different Shia parties, and that they needed to actually stand together if they were actually going to make their presence felt. Um, I think you're absolutely right. Obviously, uh, Muqtada Sadr is the big winner, at least so far from this. Um, But I think we need to be careful about that, right? Because I think you could easily read into that, well, Sadr is an Iraqi nationalist. He's neither with the United States, nor is he with the Iranians. And while there's probably something to that, I think that mostly what it reflects is, again, the, the wider fragmentation and disaffection 
of the Iraqi populace and the fact that Sadr still commands a small number of absolutely ardent supporters who he can always bring out. Right? We had an incredibly low turnout for this vote. The official figure is 41%. The real number is probably much lower than that, probably well below 20%. Um, it reflects the fact that Sadr, with that much reduced number of people voting, can still bring his people out to vote for him. I think that there's another story to be told, also very important, that Iran's main allies, the Hashtashabi militias, right, they got creamed in this election. They did extremely poorly. And on the one hand, that's a little bit surprising to me because I was afraid they would be able to rig the vote as they were able to in, in 2018, but they clearly weren't, that's good. And again, it speaks to this larger point that I, that I think is also there in the elections that we need to recognize, which is that the Iraqi people are very unhappy with their state of affairs. They're very unhappy with corruption, with the state of their economy, and they're very unhappy with their politics. But what they want is they want less Iran. They want less corruption. They want more democracy, and they want a government that is actually going to deliver. And I certainly do think that you can look at some of the votes that Muqtada al-Sadr got and said, well, people do see him as non-corrupt. Not sure that that's entirely true because there are a lot of corrupt people who work for him. They see him as trying to, to deliver a better, more capable government. Again, maybe there's some of that. But mostly, again, it's about the, the you know, real um, negative votes for the Iranians and for corruptions and Iraqis struggling to find someone out there who is actually going to deliver good governance. And I think that's kind of the last piece I just want to mention, you know, with, with regard to these different narratives we can tell about the elections, which is that, you know, so many Iraqis just stayed home because they're getting frustrated. They are losing faith in the system altogether. They still believe in democracy. They still want better governance, but they are getting tired of this ruling class and its ability to manipulate their political and economic system. And, you know, on the one hand, you can look at this, Andrew, and, and say, you know, it's been 18 years since the American invasion, and yet Iraq is still clinging to democracy, despite all of the mistakes that the United States made, all of the terrible things that Iraqis have done, just all the horrible things that have gone on in Iraq, and yet they're still clinging to, to democracy. And that's obviously a plus, and we can see in the elections the, an effort by some Iraqis at the very least to once again say, this is what we want. It's not Iran, it's not corruption. We want better governments, governance, we want democracy, right? That's a very positive story. But in the low, low turnout, I think we also have to recognize that there is this growing disillusionment, right? And for years now, we've been seeing Iraqis increasingly turned off by the system. And so while on the one hand, I can be hopeful and glad that Iraqis still seem to believe in their democracy, I'm also very concerned about how long this is gonna last. And at what point in time, a majority really tips over into the mode of this system just isn't working for us and either we need something completely different and they start to advocate for real revolution or they simply become apathetic and lose all interest in politics, which of course is what we're already starting to see. 
And let's talk a little about the, more about this macro trend and the, the positive developments you just talked about, even though turnout was still 41%. The elections occurred as the result of protests in October 2019, which led to the resignation of Prime Minister Adel Abdel Mahdi and his eventual replacement by Mustafa Al-Khadami, who pressed ahead with these early elections in response to those demonstrations. And along the way, Iraq implemented a groundbreaking electoral law and has imposed uh, engagement with international agencies, you know, UNAMI, the UN assistance mission in Iraq and others. The supervision was first rate. The UN had the largest number of monitors, I think, uh, ever in the Iraqi elections. So uh, there were very positive trends in terms of transparency, in terms of the government's commitment to a free and fair election. And in that sense, you know, the, the elections were quite positive. There seemed to be no irregularities that have been reported so far. Do you see, despite the disillusionment you talked about, do you see elections as supporting a trend towards what we might call, therefore, incremental reform? And how do you see the politicking to come over the leadership for the next government? Because once the uh, the results are certified, then the discussions begin about prime minister, president, mm -hmm. and speaker. So I think these are great points and great questions, Andrew. And, and I'll start by saying that you know I, I absolutely agree with you that the fact that Iraq seems to have had such good elections is a positive. In 2018, Iraq had terrible elections. There was massive vote rigging and voter intimidation. It was very clear that the composition of the Iraqi parliament really didn't reflect where the mass of Iraqi voters actually stood. And I was quite fearful that if we had similarly bad elections this time, that really would drive people away from the system, really would uh, greatly accelerate that disillusionment that I was talking about a moment ago. So the fact that Iraq seems to have had good elections and, and we have this quite surprising set of results, that's actually a good sign. Right. It, I think, will be hopeful to at least some Iraqis that, you know what, we can vote the way that we want to. And that vote will count and people will see what it is that we actually want. What I worry about, Andrew, of course, is the, the, the points that you made at the end of your remarks and your question, which is you know, we've seen this time and again from from Iraqis in particular, beginning in 2010, when the United States made the terrible mistake of not insisting that Iraq abide by the constitution and instead allow kind of Iraqi backroom politics to simply do its thing, where the, the, the pattern of Iraqi elections is that the people vote and they vote for who they want. And then the Iraqi politicians go off and they create a government that has absolutely nothing to do with what the people wanted and doesn't reflect how the people voted. And I worry again that that may happen this time around. Um, we'll have to see. It's probably going to be a long process of government formation. It always is in Iraq. But if you wind up with a government that looks exactly the same as it did beforehand, or that does not reflect what people voted for, right? That again could be very, very disillusioning for people. 
And this is the problem with Iraqi politics is that these elections always have two parts. The election itself, that sends one set of message, and then the backroom politicking that leads to the actual formation of a government, which can send a completely different message and typically has. Uh, and as I said, I'm very concerned about that. A last point to make there. You, know, you mentioned Mustafa Kadhmi and what he has uh, he's accomplished. Um, I am a very big fan of Prime Minister Kadhmi. I think he's an incredibly bright guy. I think he actually knows what needs to happen in Iraq to deliver better governance and greater democracy and more of what the Iraqi people actually want. Uh, I believe he's been trying to do that, but he, of course, has been stymied uh, at every turn both by the fact that he doesn't himself have a power base, he is a technocrat, that is both an advantage and a disadvantage, but also, of course, because there are these other groups that do have power bases and that are able to prevent him from doing things that would really deal with the corruption or the violence in Iraqi society. If he is named prime minister again, you know, again, that is one of these situations where it both makes me hopeful and concerned. Hopeful because my hope would be that if Kazmi now has a new electoral mandate, if he knows he's going to have a full term in office, not just as a caretaker prime minister put in power to deliver early elections, that he might actually be able to get some things done because other Iraqi politicians will recognize they need to deal with this guy. He's not going away anytime soon. On the other hand, if he's not able to deliver, if once again these same powers that be, who have tremendous uh, extra-constitutional, extra-legal power, in particular the Hashtashabi militias that are uh, close to Iran, if they simply prevent him from dealing with the corruption, from dealing with the violence in Iraqi society, again, I fear that the lesson that Iraqis will take from that is, you know, boy, even when you put a technocrat like Mustafa Kazmi in charge, and then you give him a new electoral mandate, not even that is enough to deal with these insidious, uh, nefarious powers like the Hashtashabi and all of the, the corrupt actors in Iraqi society. You mentioned Iran earlier. The U.S., Iran, and the Gulf are obviously in, invested in the outcome of this election. Under this Iraqi government, Iraq has gone from battleground to bridge in the region. It's been the scene of some really historic diplomacy. And so break down for us how these key players, the U.S., Iran, and the Gulf, view the election and what they are looking for regarding the next steps in Iraq. Sure. So I was actually in Saudi Arabia over the summer, was able to, to speak to a number of very senior officials there. I also obviously have conversations with friends in, in other governments around the region. The sense that I get with the Gulf, and I'm going to start there, is that they have recognized that Iraq is a critical player. It is a largely Arab state, has historic ties to the rest of the Arab world. It's not simply lost to Iran and that they need to actually be players there and to give Iraqis incentives to resist Iran, give Iraqis ability to resist Iran and hope to at least neutralize Iran, if not bring it over into their camp. And I think that many Iraqis would obviously agree with that. As you described it earlier, Andrew, you've got a lot of Iraqis who don't really want to be part of, of one camp or the other. They'd like to see a strong, independent Iraq. And 
I, I think that some of them are hearing what they're he, what the Golfies are saying and looking at that as a very positive development. But that said, the Gulf states are also very wary of the circumstances. And what I hear from officials throughout the, the Gulf and the wider Sunni Arab world is a real concern that Iran has too much power in Iraq at this point in time, and that it may not be possible to pull Iraq away from Iran in the near term, that it may take a very, very long term to do so, given how much influence Iran has with various Iraqi political groups, and also how much the Iranians have embedded themselves in the Iraqi economy through its corruption, uh, in part because it's so important to the Iranians, right? And we should always recognize that for the Iranians, especially during the Trump administration, when Trump imposed these much, much harsher sanctions on Iran, that made Iran even more dependent on Iraq and on corruption in the Iraqi economy. Uh, it needed that corruption to be able to evade the sanctions. As I like to say, you have to think of Iraq as being the snorkel through which Iran breathed under the, the sanctions, and those sanctions are ongoing. So Iran is a tremendous uh, incentive to want corruption in Iraq, uh, and the Gulf states are very wary of that, and they're very frightened. They obviously have some influence, but most of their influence ultimately comes from economic benefits and just to be crass, from money. The Gulf can give Iraq money, lots of money. Iraq certainly needs that money, but the Gulf states have been very wary about actually transferring it in large part because they want to make sure that when they transfer it to Iraq, it doesn't go immediately to Iran. Right? And another issue for them, and I hear this all the time uh, in their conversations, and I hear it from the Iraqi side as well, is that the Iraqi government has such limited competence and effectiveness at this point that it's often the case that when the Gulf states want to give money to the Iraqis to do something, the Iraqi government literally can't receive it. They have no ability to take that money and then go do something with it. So you've got these two very big issues, which we've already talked about in terms of the competence and effectiveness of the Iraqi government on the one hand, and it's corruption, both of which are disincentives, or at least making the Gulf states wary. For the United, actually, let me come to the United States last. They're hard. The Iranians, I think it's fairly straightforward. They want to make sure that Iraq is not only not unfriendly to Iran, they'd like to see an Iraq that is very friendly to Iran. And I think ultimately they'd like to see an Iraq that is subservient to Iran. Now, whether they can get that is another issue. Uh, we have a, a bad habit as Americans of just assuming that the Iranians can do this and can do it easily. You know, what we've seen over the course of time is that it's actually not all that easy for the Iranians. Uh, the Iraqis push back. Uh, it can be expensive for the Iranians to really gain influence in Iraq. Uh, the Iranians certainly can use a certain amount of violence there, but there are Iraqis who will push back. And you know, as we saw in these protests that broke out in October of 2019, the Iraqis don't like it. 
when they do that. And it really turns Iraqis off when they see the Iranians using large-scale violence in Iraqi society. So I think this is the issue that the Iranians are struggling with right now, is given their own problems, economic, political, and otherwise, caused both by the American sanctions and by their own mismanagement and their own problems in their society, how much influence can they actually exercise in Iraq at what cost to themselves? They're trying to maximize their influence while minimizing the costs they pay. And you know that's a, that's a constant struggle for the Iranians and they don't always get it right. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But I think it's much more straightforward on their part. Last, the United States and the Biden administration, you know, I'll simply say, Andrew, I don't feel like I really know. I think that I have a general sense of what the Biden administration would, would like to do. I think that they recognize that the US pulled back too far under both Obama and Trump, that that was a mistake, that they recognize that Iraq is more important than either Obama and Trump believed it was. But of course, they're not at all interested in making the same kind of maximalist commitment to Iraq that George W. Bush did. And they too have all these other issues on their plate that they need to address. I think that they're trying to remain more engaged with Iraq, and we've seen them do that. They've uh, had these meetings at various levels, including high-level meetings with Prime Minister Kadhmi. This has been really terrific for the U.S.-Iraq relationship. They have provided a little bit more economic assistance to Iraq, uh, which has certainly been helpful to the Iraqis, but they're not, they don't seem much willing to go beyond that. And from the Iraqi perspective, the Iraqi allies of the United States, they need a lot more help because they are trying to push back on Iran's allies in Iraq. And while, as I said, Iraq isn't as generous as, as we often give them credit for, and they aren't as violent as uh, we, uh, we sometimes accuse them of, they are willing to provide resources. They are willing to use violence. And so the Iraqis are constantly looking to the United States to say, will you at least match what the Iranians are doing? Will you help us to push back on the Iranians? So far, the Biden administration hasn't been willing to do that. And you mentioned you were in Saudi Arabia. There seems to be some traction in Iran-Saudi talks, thanks to the good offices of Iraq. Are you hopeful about those talks being able to reconcile these two longstanding adversaries, including on bringing some resolution to the war in Yemen, which the UN has called the worst humanitarian crisis in the world? Uh, I wish I could be hopeful, Andrew, but I, I'm afraid I'm not. I'm actually quite pessimistic about these talks. First, I think it's important to recognize why we have these talks. Uh, the Iranians were waging a unilateral air campaign against Saudi Arabia. They were uh, launching missiles, drones, cruise missiles against the Saudis some directly, some from various allies, the Houthis in Yemen, some of the militia groups in Iraq. Uh, but you know, it's very important to recognize these the Saudis agreed to these talks in May. They agreed to these talks in May because in April, they suffered 84 missile, cruise missile, and drone attacks on Saudi Arabia by Iran and its allies, one of which actually hit one of the royal palaces in Riyadh. And again, the Saudis had no answer for it. They can't retaliate. 
the U.S. was not willing to retaliate, something that began under Trump, but has now continued under Biden. This was terrifying and infuriating to the Saudis. They actually went to the Turks to see if they could buy drones of their own so that they could retaliate against the Saudis. But when that proved impossible, they realized, okay, we have to do this. And there was another incentive as well, which is that the Biden administration, the brand new Biden administration wanted them to go and sit down with the Iranians. And the Saudi attitude was very much, all right, we will try this. We don't seem to have any other alternative. We've got to turn off these attacks on Saudi Arabia. And if this convinces the, the, convinces the Americans that we're not the problem, that will be helpful too. And the Saudis have put on the table a peace deal that every neutral party looks at and says, this would be a great peace deal for Yemen. And it is the Houthis and the Iranians that continue to reject it. And the Saudis are not willing to go much beyond that. And nobody's asking them to. Uh, you know, you've got the Americans and the UN personnel who are involved in this saying what the Saudis have offered is a great deal. It is a perfectly reasonable one. They are not the problem. But what I hear from both Saudis and Iraqis, for that matter, about the talks in Baghdad is that the Iranians are not interested in discussing any of this with the Saudis. The only thing that they want to talk about is resuming diplomatic relations between the two countries, which, of course, is uh, basically the Iranians saying, we just want you to stop doing the one thing that you're doing we don't like, which is cutting diplomatic relations with us. Um, other than that, we're not interested in doing anything for you. And so the Saudis are kind of going through the motions, um, hoping that maybe something will change there, but mostly because as long as they're talking to the Iranians, the Iranians haven't been attacking Riyadh. There's still attacks on the periphery of the Saudi Arabia, but at least they're not going after the capital. And again, it allows the Saudis to say to the Americans, we are doing exactly what you asked. We're talking to the Iranians. We're putting real deals on the table, but it doesn't seem to be having any impact. And again, you know, there's a lot of recognition on the American side. Uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan was in Riyadh. Um, our envoy to Yemen, Tim Lenderking, is there all the time. What you are consistently hearing from the American side is, yeah, the Saudis aren't the problem. But that raises the question, I think, uh, in many people's minds, including many Saudi minds of, OK, if we're no longer the problem, United States, are you or the international community going to do anything to put some pressure on Iran to make them more amenable, them more willing to compromise? So far, the answer seems to be no. And unless that changes, I don't see these talks producing any more meaningful compromise. And again, to go back to this question about the Biden administration, yeah, the Biden administration is very focused on the JCPOA, on the Iran nuclear deal, on getting the Iranians back to that. I think they would like to deal with these regional issues, but I think it's becoming clearer and clearer the Iranians have no interest in doing so. And that if the Biden administration wants to get the Iranians to agree to a resumption of the nuclear deal, they're probably going to have to scrap or shelve or put on the back burner all of these regional issues which again makes me very pessimistic that these talks between the Saudis and the Iranians are going to produce meaningful compromise. Ken, you teased my next question, which is um, U.S. policy toward Iran and the next round of negotiations on the JCPOA. They're expected next month. Where do these talks stand 
Will they pick up where they left off in June? And what do you expect as an outcome? Is it is it possible to put the Iran nuclear deal back together, uh, including with Ibrahim Raisi as president of Iran? Yeah, uh, the sixty four. I was going to say sixty four thousand dollar question, but of course that would date me. Um, the sixty four billion dollar question, I guess. Um, so let me start with your first and your third questions on that, and then we'll dig into the, the second one, which I think is the, you know, the most, most interesting by far. So where they stand is they are stalemate. Uh, we've had new, several rounds of negotiations in the spring between the new Biden administration and the outgoing Iranian administration, the Rouhani administration, uh, which were actually quite fruitful. And as I understand it from a whole variety of, of different uh, participants and observers, including Europeans, um, they basically had gotten to something like a deal for how the US and Iran would come back into the JCPOA. But there were a number of issues that kind of everyone agreed would have to be done on the Iranian part that Tehran had not yet bought off on. And so there was no final agreement on that. Iran had elections, as you point out. We've got a new uh, president in Iran, Ibrahim Rahisi, who is much more the hardliner than Hassan Rouhani ever was. Uh, seems to be taking a very different approach uh, to the negotiations. Um, is it possible, your third question to me? I think it is possible. I think that in particular, what has been consistent throughout this period over the course of the last year or so has been that Iran's supreme leader, and we all have to remember that while the Iranian president is not unimportant in their system, he is not the most important figure in their system. Ultimately, the supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, he is the most important figure by far. And Ayatollah Khamenei has consistently said that he would like to go back to the JCPOA. And I think that's very important. And I think that he means that. I think that he recognizes that it would be very good for Iran and his people to have the sanctions lifted once again, to have the international pressure off of Iran once again. And I also believe that he actually really does mean it when he says that he's not looking for a nuclear arsenal. Now, I think that that is true of Khamenei. I won't say that about everyone in the Iran system, but I actually do believe that Khamenei has decided that in a, a nuclear arsenal is not necessary for Iran because really no one is looking to invade Iran and that it would be more trouble than it's actually worth. So I think that Khamenei actually would like to go back to the JCPOA. I, I think the real issues, and this is, you know, you're, you're, your second question, the, the various points that you made around that, that's where I think that it becomes very interesting and very, very tricky. Because while I do believe that Khamenei would like to go back to the deal, and I think that that is what he is telling his people, and we have seen Raisi and other Iranian officials have to kind of duly intone those same remarks, I don't think that they have the same interest. I think that what we've consistently seen from Iran's hardliners is they are not interested in the nuclear deal. They didn't like the original one. They hated it, and, and worth remembering, they said the United States will never abide by it, the Americans will cheat, they will lie, and they will renege on the agreement. And as far as they're concerned, they were proven absolutely correct. Right? That is, as far as they're concerned, that is exactly what the Americans did, in particular, what the Trump administration did, that has greatly advantaged them in these conversations. And I think we also have to recognize that because Rouhani is no longer president, 
there's no longer a moderating voice at the table when the Iranian regime has these conversations about what it's going to do. And so while Khamenei may, in a theoretical level, want to go back to the JCPOA, my guess is that everybody else sitting at that table with him, metaphorically speaking, is saying, this is a terrible idea. We can't let the Americans do this. We have to demand that, right? And ultimately that their game will be, and I think we're already starting to see it, that they're not gonna actually say, well, you know, we oppose going back to the nuclear deal. But I think they're trying to create conditions under which even Khamenei will decide, I don't wanna do this. I'm very concerned about that. And I think that it was far more likely that we could get back to the JCPOA when Rouhani was president, because he and his foreign minister, Mohammad Javad Zarif, they really believed in the deal and they were constantly trying to persuade Khamenei this would be good for Iran. The problems could be overcome. There were ways to deal with it. I think now what we're looking at is a Raisi government that uh, may not be flat out saying, don't do it, boss. But what they are going to be doing, we're already starting to see it, is creating all kinds of issues and all kinds of problems and constantly saying, well, we need to solve this before we agree to it, and we need to solve that, and we should make the Americans do this, and we should make the Americans do that, that in effect will make it impossible for Khamenei to go ahead and actually agree to it. That's my great fear. It's why I think there's still absolutely a chance but if I were a betting man, I wouldn't bet my mortgage that this is going to happen. And we're almost out of time. But last question, the U.S.-Israel strategic dialogue has been primarily focused on Iran, including what would be a plan B if there is no nuclear deal. What's your take on the U.S.-Israel conversation about Iran, what a plan B would look like, or, or even if there is a plan A, which... We'll assume would be a nuclear agreement from Israel's view, what would be its position? And do you think Iran is uh, ready to consider crossing the nuclear weapons threshold if there isn't a deal? Ali Vays of the International Crisis Group was on the show last week, and he said that Iran is only likely to do so if it's attacked. Sure. So let me start there. And let me start by saying, Andrew, that I, I generally agree with Ali. I, as, I said, as long as Khamenei is the supreme leader in Iran, I actually don't think that the Iranians would cross the nuclear threshold. I think that Khamenei has decided that Iran is not under any threat of invasion and that it is also not any, uh, under any threat of nuclear attack. And short of those two threats, which I think were very real threats, for the Iranians during the George W. Bush administration. But since then, I think they feel like, or Khamenei feels like it's not necessary to have a nuclear deterrent and a nuclear deterrent is much more trouble than it's actually worth. Now, when he passes and there's a new Supreme leader, all bets are off. But as long as Khamenei is there, I actually do think that that is correct. Now, to the Israeli-US relationship. I think that the Israelis are unhappy about a return to the JCPOA, but they're willing to do it. And I think that the Israelis also do recognize that there is some utility for them, because if it does cause the Iranians to cease and desist from the, the current nuclear operations that they're uh, implementing, that would be useful for Israel. It would give Israel more time to put in place a plan B 
if there's no American plan B, right? An American plan B could conceivably be a follow-on agreement of some kind. That seems highly unlikely, but I think that's clearly where the Biden administration would like to go. That's what they keep saying. I think the Israelis might be open to that, but I think that they're very skeptical. And I think that what they're really looking for right now is, yeah, let's see if we can get the nuclear deal. But whether we get a return to the JCPOA or not, the Israelis are already thinking about what comes next. And there, I think it is very much about trying to get the Americans to see things the way that they do, which is that at some point, the Iranians are going to restart their nuclear deal, whether it's in the context of the JCPOA or outside it, it's going to happen. And that when that happens, there is going to have to be a much more aggressive campaign to stop that Iranian nuclear program might just be covert action, might be uh, cyber, might be limited military strikes, might be larger military strikes. But I think that they want to try to get the Biden administration to the point where they recognize that's what's going to happen and hopefully get the Biden administration's forbearance, if not active cooperation with it when it happens. And the last point I'll make, I think this is actually a, a much bigger issue uh, than it was 10 years ago. Um, 10 years ago, Israel really didn't have the military capability or the covert or the cyber capability um, to actually stop the Iranian nuclear program. They've made tremendous progress on all of those different fronts, as witnessed by any number of things that we've seen the Israelis do in Iran. This time around, the Israelis may actually have a real military covert cyber option against the Iranian nuclear program. So whereas beforehand, I think they were thinking about that as kind of a act of last resort, and we're mostly using it as a way of pressuring the United States and the rest of the world to push the Iranians to, to agree to, to limit the program. This time around, I think they're still hoping to get this agreement and maybe a follow-on agreement, but that they're actually much more sanguine about their own ability to deal with the Iranian nuclear program on their own if they have to do so. And of course, that could be very destabilizing to the region if that's the way things go. Ken, this has been a terrific conversation. I, I always enjoy and learn from our interactions about the region. Thank you for joining us today on, on the Middle East. Thank you for having me, Andrew. As you know, I always enjoy our conversations as well. Uh, I am a huge fan of our monitor, and perhaps maybe in the future, you'll let me interview you on these very same topics. We will return after this break. Hello. I'm uh, Gilles Kepel, professor at uh, Sciences Po and uh, Normal Sup in Paris and author of a number of uh, books and articles on the Middle East. The Middle East remains one of the most vital and fascinating regions in the world. It is rich in complexity and ideas, but for many in the West, it remains a puzzle with many missing pieces. Through my new podcast, Reading the Middle East on the award-winning media service and monitor, we will take a deep dive into the trends in the region with the authors and thought leaders who are shaping how we think about the Middle East. To begin my podcast, I speak with my friend and one of the most renowned novelists of the region, Egyptian writer Ala El Eswani, about his latest book, The Republic of False Truths, that chronicles the run-up to Egypt's 
2011 revolution and its aftermath. Reading the Middle East will be a fantastic addition to Al Monitor's outstanding podcast lineup, including On the Middle East with Andrew Paraziliti and Amber Inzaman, and On Israel with Ben Kaspit. You can subscribe to all three Al Monitor podcasts on your favorite listening platforms. We look forward to your joining our conversation. Thanks to our guest today, Ken Pollack of the American Enterprise Institute. Thanks to Beowulf Roshlin of Two Square Media Productions. And thanks to all of you for listening. We will be back next week. And if you haven't done so, please sign up for all of our El Monitor podcasts, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel, On Israel with Ben Caspit, and On the Middle East, hosted by Amber and Zaman and me at your favorite podcast platform. Thank you.